Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Stefan Nakamura. Arguably one of Hollywood's leading colorists, who has delivered the final look of movies for Edgar Wright, Ridley Scott, and Steven Spielberg. And whose credits include Fight Club, The Departed, and The Hurt Locker. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics, from the way colorists translate the emotional needs of a film into technical choices, Stefan's approach with visually driven directors like Gore Verbinski and David Fincher, his relationship with Da Vinci Resolve and recent work on It Chapter 2, and much more. Folks, I want to apologize that the sound quality of this conversation is not as sharp as we've come to expect from previous episodes. But Stefan's stories are so fascinating, I hope this won't distract you more than it should. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. So Stefan, thank you again so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's really a pleasure. Uh, just to make sure that all listeners familiarize with you know what the duties of a colorist are, if you had to explain your job to your Nana, how would you put it? Well, job of a colorist basically is to take footage that was shot. It's usually cut together already by an editor. And we get the whole piece, whether that's a commercial, music video, feature, TV show. And shot by shot, we color correct each shot. Sometimes it can be as simple as just making the shots match. Other times it's much more complicated where we have to do keys and windows and all these kind of things to isolate certain images and certain parts of the screen or certain parts of the shot. And we can do basically almost anything to manipulate the image to give the uh, viewer the desired result that the director wants. I thought we could begin by talking about, you know, the emotional reaction that you may have when you first receive a movie and just understanding the needs of a film. About it, you this to say, quote, when I look at a movie, I start correcting it without any sound and direction for the most part. I do a first pass of what I feel the movie should be based on the way it was shot. Shape the color based on the emotion that fits the scene best. Close quote. So I was wondering, upon this first viewing experience, what is your process in regards to trying to externalize your feelings you're having? How far do you try and go into experimenting and just explore all the things the movie could be first? First of all, I'm always very respectful of the cinematographer. When I'm looking at any piece of footage for a movie, I always look at the footage raw and I get a feel for what the cinematographer is trying to accomplish. In general, we can look at shots as colorists and say, oh, you know, maybe they didn't have time to flag something, so I know I'm gonna to have to put windows or vignettes or things like that. As I start looking at the shots, typically cinematographers is gonna make the characters' faces look good. So we'll balance it kind of around there and see where the shot goes. And at that point, you start getting a feel for what the movie's emotion should kind of be like. And then at that point, I start experimenting a little bit regarding saturation or desaturation or how dark or how bright things go. And then if it feels right and I can get sort of an overall look and feel for a movie cohesively, then at that point, that's something I know I can show the cinematographer or director. Usually there's also a dailies, kind of like an avid output that they've already had. 
So editor or director may say, hey, you know, my avid, we've desaturated everything and we kind of want to stay with that palette. Or they may say, hey, we've saturated everything and we kind of want to stay with that palette. So I'll take those notes in mind and kind of refer back and see what the intent is. And then at that point, I'll just kind of do what I do and just get a feel for things. A LUT should be thought of as something like a, a palette that you could use so that you can kind of play around and be more creative as the deliverables come along, or should you change your mind? Someone may say on set, I want my movie to look really desaturated and I want it to look like a bleach bypass movie. Well, maybe by the time you get to your finishing stage, the other creators may say, you know, we don't really like that. This may be a summer blockbuster movie and we kind of want it to be a little bit more color and a little bit more saturation. We're approaching everything from a very technical side, but I know there's a lot more creativity and emotion than people may realize. Why do you think your work as a colorist allows you to operate on a far more subconscious and emotional level? In other words, is there a way you have realized for you to, you know, approach your work and engage an audience in an emotional way? The technical side is really important for one reason, and that is the workflow and the amount of deliverables for exhibition has grown exponentially as time has gone on. You know, so we have your theatrical distribution that you see in theater. There's also Dolby Vision, then there's IMAX, then there's HDR, there's Rec. 709. There are all these different deliverables. In order to creatively do your best work, you have to kind of understand the, the technology sort of first. If I understand how the technology works and I can help guide a client into doing whatever they want to do, and for myself also, being able to color correct with total freedom, I have to understand that technology first because it's very complicated. There are different buckets, there are different light levels, there are different color spaces. They all have their advantages. And they all will look a little bit different. But in order for us as colorists to basically carry the same feel and look of a movie through each deliverable, you have to really understand the technology and the limitations of what that technology can do. I think that's what's really important. And once we understand that, then we can just say, okay, well, now we can just take the technology out of it. Now just get on a color corrector, start looking at the image and start getting a feel for what you want to do. We just never want to be hamstrung in any way. When we get hamstrung due to the technology, then we're not able to do our best work. So almost 100% of the times, all of our best work is done where we have total freedom to do what we need. And that is really understanding the whole technology of each of the deliverables. You always speak about Resolve, and I was wondering if we could just take a moment to, to talk about how the program is an extension of your creative choices. Once more, quote, I've worked in Resolve as long as it's been around. I like the way it's laid out, and I can access the tools I need, pushing very few keystrokes or buttons. That kind of time-saving adds up to a great deal when you're coloring complicated movies, close quote. So I was wondering, the same way we sometimes ask an editor how they like to set up their space, have you found a way to set up your Resolve windows to get as much creativity and time efficiency out of it? Each different colors has their own user preferences. You know, you have your monitor and you can basically jigsaw puzzle it any way you want. You can, you know, everyone knows where the keys are because the keyboard has basically stayed the same and the panels have stayed the same. So individually, some people have different colors for keys. Some people set their projects up a little bit different. I think I approach color correction a certain way in a very logical manner for me. Um, I wouldn't say that other people would do the same. 
I think a lot of people here at Company 3 will approach things the same way I do. But I think a lot of other people everywhere else, they may approach color completely different. I approach color basically in a very simplified term as far as like a lab timer used to, where you're just basically using your lift and gain first. And you're trying to just produce the best picture you can with that. And 90% of the time you can. And all the rest of the tools are there to just help finesse everything else. So we get logarithmic images and we kind of push it around and it sort of looks filmic. And from there, we use all the other tools to make it look the way we want to. So that's usually the process. You're talking about structuring the work and it's important for people to realize that the program allows you to do so much with an image that you could really get lost trying to tweak something for days if you wanted to. I was curious to ask you a little bit about your process structuring the work. When you're beginning and you, you know you have this amount of time to work on a movie, I was wondering how do you try and think about the macro and the micro at the same time and make sure that each sequence gets as much attention as the previous one? Right, so that's a great question. So the, the simplest way is to, is to look at it this way. If I'm basically timing each individual shot within a scene, right, and I'm using the really basic color correction tools that the Resolve has just to balance your picture out. If so, I balance the picture out first. Once I balance the picture out, immediately I can see what's gonna be an issue, right? So I'm balancing the picture up. Oh, when the picture's totally balanced, the faces are too dark. Right. I know I'm gonna to have to drop windows on the faces. So I'm just gonna keep balancing everything. Like, let's just say there's a night scene, exterior night scene. I'm balancing the picture out so that everything except their faces looks perfect. But I see that the faces look, look dark. Okay, fine. I'll put windows on their faces, I'll track them, brighten them up, and continue on. Other times I'll say, oh, well, let me see if I can brighten up the overall shot, get the faces looking right, maybe put a vignette around the whole thing and darken everything else down, or put a certain window here or there. I mean, that's something that after you've been coloring for a long time, it just comes natural to you. You figure out which is the best way to make the picture look good. Sometimes it's working on the faces, sometimes it's brightening everything up, using their faces as a key, and then pulling everything else back down. It's either one way or the other, but as you start feeling the, the shot and you start pushing the grade through as a colorist, you get a feel and immediately go, oh, I think this is what's gonna make this overall shot look good and this overall scene. So I'll approach this whole scene that way. I'm still gonna color correct it. Let's just say in this case where I say, I think the best thing for this whole scene would be I just brighten their faces. So I'm just gonna grade the whole thing to make everything look right and smooth and the faces maybe all be too dark. Then I'm gonna come back in and brighten all their faces in this case. So that's like a scene by scene basis. I'll go through and in my mind, I already know how much work I have to do as I keep balancing the shots. So if there's a certain amount of time it takes me to do 20 minutes, I already know, okay, well, I've got 35 shots in one scene. I have to draw faces and do some keys or some power windows and I'm gonna to have to track that. Others, I'm just going to have to do vignettes. That won't take me that long. I, I can kind of gauge my time that way. Talking to yourself and everyone has been so enlightening because I realized this, the same way a production designer uses his hands to illustrate and a sound designer uses his ears, you rely on your eyes quite a bit, you know? And I was driving over and I was thinking how difficult it must be to sometimes spend, you know, 10 to 12 hours in the room. And if you get lost specifically for stylized movies, your eyes may adjust to something. So I was curious to ask you, how do you try and, and maintain perspective, whether it's taking breaks and stepping outside and just making sure that, you know, your eyes can always adjust back to the reality that there's the movie you're doing. Luckily, I've been doing this so long <laughs> so <laughs> i'm so used to this that i don't really get lost with the color 
So I think you find tricks as a colorist. I think a lot of people early on in their career, I think that happens. And I remember that happening to me. And then as you get more seasoned as a colorist, just like a painter's or every, you know, sort of any other creative endeavor, you find tricks so that you can prevent your mind from tricking you. You find certain ways of color correcting that you go, okay, well, these are my hotkeys for color correction. When I see this, I know that, you know, I have sort of like a reference point for me for white, or if I'm drifting magenta, or if I'm drifting yellow, I can see this and I know I can reset my eyes, whatever that may be for each individual person. Sometimes it's like black levels or it's like a certain white or you're in certain different color temperatures for your white point. Like some people color correct in DCI-P3, which is like a yellower white point and certain shows you're at D65, which is like a cooler white point. So whether you're, you're doing one white point with a different color temperature or another, there are always ways that I work with that I can figure out whether I'm getting lost, if I'm getting too green, if I'm getting too magenta, if I'm getting too dark, I'm getting too bright. But that's kind of an individual thing for me. I don't know really how anyone else works. But I know what you're talking about that used to happen to me early in my career and I'd come back the next day and be like, what the heck did I do? And when I actually mentor people and some of our junior colors, that happens to them a lot. And I just go, hey, don't, don't, don't worry. You know, if I see what they did the next day, I'm like, holy cow, man, this stuff is really green. I can't believe I did that. It's like, that's okay. Go this way the next time and then take a look at this and take a look at this in your shot. Keep these as points for your eyes to see. Maybe some bright stuff in the sky or in a sconce or something, you know, whatever that may be. I'll teach them some tricks to help them get better the next time. As I begin to wrap things up, I thought I would ask you specifically about a project which I very much love, which is a cure for wellness. And, and it shows that there can be a camaraderie and a loyalty between cinematographers and colorists in this case. You know, so Boyan Bazelli, who's an amazing cinematographer, and I was reading a little bit about A Cure for Wellness, and it's my understanding that you guys created a look that was far more desaturated in the final movie than it was captured in camera. So I was wondering, in what ways did you guys try to explore the feel for that movie? And perhaps in what way did the movie changed from the way you thought you were going to color it to the way it ended up actually being. Yeah, first of all, yes, Boyan Bozzelli is an amazing cinematographer. He can shoot any movie with any style, any type of drama, comedy, horror. He can do anything and make it look beautiful. So he doesn't just have like one particular style. The look of Cure for Wellness is heavily driven by Gore Verbinski. So Gore Verbinski is one of the most visual directors that I've ever worked with. So he is highly tuned to color correction and he knows it very well. So he spends a lot of time in color grading and he cares a lot about it. So he cares a lot about the look of his movie and the feel of his movie. So that look for Cure for Wellness is something that Boyan and I will try our best to give to Gore because we've worked with Gore before and we kind of know his sensibilities, but that's kind of his style, you know, Gore. The visual beauty of Gore Verbinski's movies is kind of like the way David Fincher is. You know, there's a certain look that they have and it's driven from them. They have to have good cinematographers and they have to have good colors, but there's such visual directors that that look is really driven from those directors. But yes, I agree with you. You know, we had that movie in here and 
our sister were looking at all the different movies and they're like, that's the best looking movie right there. <laughs> you know, I just remember one of the sisters saying that, like, your images are really awesome. Like, yeah, they're really awesome. <laughs> Something in the water? At the bottom. I don't see anything. I saw you before. You a patient here? She's just so much younger than everyone else. Director Volmer says I'm a special case. What about you? Are you here for the cure? No. Actually, I was just leaving. No one ever leaves. Every project is different, but something like that, for example, how many weeks do you try and evolve? Because it's something we didn't really tap into, but I admire the fact that you're keeping so busy. You know, you're doing sometimes five to seven projects a year. How many weeks do you try and devolve to, to something like that? I think it just depends on the movie. You know, sometimes they have a very accelerated post schedule. So we don't have time a lot of times to play around as much as some other movies. In general, I mean, I've been doing features for so long, I can kind of get to where we need to go with whatever time frame they give us or we need. So it's just sort of like a project by project basis, I would say. Sometimes they're really heavy visual effects shows that are 2D and 3D and stuff is coming in really late. Visual effects shots are coming in really late. That's part of my job is to just help make it work. There's no option, right? It's just got to get done. So sometimes I can go 40 miles an hour. Sometimes I need to go 90 miles an hour because I have to. And there's tricks for me to go and get some things done quicker if we need to in order to get it done. And so I think that's just like a project by project basis. The main thing is it gets done the way it's supposed to and it still looks great and nobody knows how much work was being put into it or how many hours, right? It should all look the same. My grandfather thinks this town is cursed. He says that all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing, an evil thing that feeds off the people of dairy. But it can't be one thing. We all saw something different. Maybe. Or maybe it knows what scares us most, and that's what we see. I, I, I saw a leper. He, he was like a walking infection. But you didn't, because it isn't real. None of this is. Not Eddie's leper, or, or Bill seeing Georgie, or the woman I, I keep seeing. Is she hot? No, Richie. She's not hot. Her face is all messed up. They're all like bad dreams. We're all afraid of something. Got that right. Hi, Rich. What are you afraid of? Clones. Let me just wrap our conversation up, obviously, by asking you again about It Chapter 2 and the role of Pennywise. Quote, for the first It, we had Alpha Channel's mats cut around Pennywise's eyes for every shot he's in, and we used color corrector to enhance his eyes. Close quote. So I was wondering if there was a specific approach you guys had to that character specifically, and perhaps what did you learn from the first one that you got to apply on the second one if it felt different in any way? Well, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize how difficult this is for cinematographers to shoot in low light situations. You know, in the old days when they were shooting on film, I think all the cinematographers, I mean, they, they are shooting way more setups per day now that people are shooting digital, they have to work at a very accelerated pace. They have to rely on us a lot more now 
in color correction, you know, whether that's flagging walls off and stuff that they used to do in the past, but now they'll just kind of let it go because they, they just got to move quicker. And they know we can just put a power window in 10 seconds and put a power window over a ceiling and darken the ceiling if there's light spilling there. So I think the cinematographers are in tougher situation, maybe than they might have in the past, simply from a time perspective. So when you have to shoot really dark movies like it and the stuff is done at night or they're done in a basement with water and you can't get a lot of light in there, you know, it helps when for us with Pennywise to have his eyes get a little bit sharper and a little bit brighter and you can see the whites while he's still dark. It just looks like more creepy. It's like if you have any colorist listening, <laughs> they can try this out. If you just take a regular shot and you put two windows over people's eyes and you just brighten it up, you don't have to put any sharpening on. You don't have to put any aperture correction. Just brighten up both of their eyes and track them and see how weird they look. They start looking kind of alien looking, right? It's just the same kind of concept. It's really weird. Like with photography, you see human faces and you see where they look good. And you can also, if you kind of goose up their eyes and really kind of brighten them up, they start looking kind of cat-like. So that's kind of the whole point of doing that for Pennywise and for a lot of other scenes, you know, doing other tricks that, that we did. So that was the approach that, that you know, Andy Machete had. And uh, I think it worked really great. Was there an effort to try and involve the visual look of the film from one to another? I think we tried to keep it consistent the feel of the movie. Checo, the cinematographer for it too, I think he really looked at how Chung Hoon, Chung lit one, and try to kind of keep that same sort of vibe, but also use his creativity to create his own look. You know, for me as a colorist, I'm just trying to keep the look for both of movies kind of feeling the same, but letting the creativity of the cinematographer flourish because what they do each individually is so spectacular that I don't really have to do that much to it. That's my goal was if there are certain scenes that were reflective of it one, I'd sort of make that grade look very similar as much as possible. So the viewers just get an automatic feel. Oh, look, this is just an extension of it one. But the other scenes are really not an extension. It's really Chekhov's creativity of how he lights for it too. And I'll just let that go the way he wants and the way he did it. And again, I think the, the movie's very beautiful. Stefan, thank you so, so much for your time. And we truly look forward to all the movies that are coming out, which have your signature style. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Company 3 for setting this conversation up. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, review, and share the show with your friends. It's really important. And it's what allows us to bring you new conversations every month. Look for us on Facebook to receive first-hand updates on which guests we'll be speaking to next. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.